Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 95 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom. And Vera Grubbs, along with the rest of the crew. This month, our musical guest is Joel Curtis. We'll listen to his interview and some of his great original music we recorded in our studio. Jim Eagleman shares his observation about animal sayings. Jeff Tryon delivers his thoughts about real Brown County. And we'll hear our interview with local author, Phil Stevens. Pam Rader gives us a timely history lesson on the suffragettes, and Dave Seastrom remembers the blizzard of 78. In our first segment, we'll hear our interview with Joel Curtis. Jim Eagleman has a few thoughts about animal sayings, and we'll close with the Joel Curtis song, Little Me. So it is my pleasure to introduce Joel Curtis, who has just treated us with an outstanding performance of his original music and excellent guitar playing. Thank you so much for coming in, Joel. We really appreciate it on this cold, blustery night. Thanks Uh, for having me. Yeah. Happy to be here. So you were born in southwest Michigan, and now you live in Madison, Indiana. Yeah. So how did you get from there to here? Well... Maybe surprising or not, uh, there's a girl at the at the center ah, of the story. <laughs> uh, a Madison girl, perhaps. Yep. Uh, well, well, well. Actually, she she. I met her when I was living in Michigan uh, okay. still, and she was living in Louisville. Oh. So we actually met online. Um, wow. So so online dating. You know, I, I won't say I, I don't recommend it to people, but it did work for us. Um, this uh, was, I know many examples. Yeah, of successful I mean, relationships. It happens for sure. Right. Um, so that was about five years ago. So still going strong. And uh, yeah, so I started visiting her on my weekends off work, and I at that point I was really just I had been writing songs for a long time, but I just started playing live, and uh, so I was getting a lot of gigs down in in the Louisville area, uh, certainly more than I was getting up in Michigan, um, and so yeah, I I just decided to move down to be with her and and play music. So you're then, a Hoosier uh, now then? I'm a Hoosier now because uh, I don't know maybe. A year and a half, almost two years ago, we uh, decided to move to Madison just to get more bang for our buck in terms of house and yard because we have a lot of dogs and we like to foster old dogs. So, oh, How many dogs do you have? Currently we have five. Five? Yeah, That's most of good... which are rescues, all but one of which are rescues and a few of which are old. So, 
Well, I think I'm the old dog in my family. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we have a couple of rescues. I can totally relate to that. Yeah. yeah. I've spent the afternoon listening to your music and perusing your website, which is really well done, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and I've, it gave me just a little hint of who you are, but this live performance really solidified my original thoughts, which were that you are a clean and honest songwriter and performer. Thank you. Thank you. That's high praise. I appreciate that. Well, there's something just friendly, inclusive, um, descriptive, and romantic, if you will, about your music. Thank and, you. I agree. I, I strive so for that. I, I, I saw that on your site you say that it's kind of a combination of John Gorka meets uh, Van Morrison. Mm. And uh, I would I would throw in maybe, maybe a little David Wilcox on top yes, of that. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Madison's a very interesting town. It's a river town, and it's mm-hmm. got some of those really cool old mansions right oh, along yeah. the river. And, oh, yeah. Um, and a lot of history that mm-hmm. goes through there. Um, do you feel like any of that is influencing your music these days? or In subtle ways, not in any obvious ways. Um, I, I think that you know, your environment always influences you. This is actually my first experience in a small town. When I was born in Holland, Holland was kind of country. Okay. It was really, it was quite rural. Right. And uh, it kind of just zipped from that to, by the time I was 18, uh, it was suburbs. Okay. Um, so this is kind of my first small town experience. And it's been very interesting. It's very different from anything I've ever experienced before. But I, I don't know that it's worked its way into my songwriting quite yet. I've, I've you know, I've gotten a couple of tidbits, you know, just walking around in life, you know, you get, you get little... As a songwriter, your your antenna is always on, and so I'm just, since I'm spending more time in Madison than anywhere else, I'm going to pick up on stuff there. But so, roll on Big River has not happened yet. Then roll on Big River has not happened yet. Um, <laughs> I I do. There is one. I have one song in the works um, that was inspired by a couple of names that I saw uh, along the river. There, they've got bricks laid. Uh, it's okay. a beautiful walk along the river there in Madison. And they've got bricks laid, and, and you can, uh, I guess, buy one of these bricks to have your name inscribed or whatever. A lot of them are in memoriam or, or whatever. Sure. Um, and I saw a couple of interesting names, and I, I started to weave a story around that. And so uh, that song is in the works. But uh, Again, I was so impressed with your lyrics because, as I said, they're clean, but they, they do a great job of telling the story. Thank you. This evening you performed a few tunes that I heard on your website mm-hmm. today, and and all of them um, just really do a great job of sharing, or at least in you know as a listener, I felt like you were sharing a big piece of yourself, and and I felt included. So you know I think that's something special that not every musician has. For me, at least, and and I think for a lot of people, um, one of the magical things about not only songwriting but all art is you know it. You try to make it universal but personal at the same time, and that can be a delicate balance to hit. Um, you know, you want to tell your own story because that, that's that's where all the feeling in the heart is. But at the same time, I guess art just takes advantage of the fact that, in a way, we all have similar stories. You know, there's tons of overlap because we're all human, and, and so there you go. Um, try to hit that spot. Well, musically, um, so I'm going to guess that you didn't start off in heavy metal or uh, a punk <laughs> band or. I picked. I, I bought an electric guitar once, and okay. uh, you know, because I kind of went through a sort of phase where I wanted to kind of play around with like. Cause I loved '60s music and still do. It's my favorite era still of music. Um, 
but back then I was really wild about it. I just started playing guitar and I wanted to learn Hendrix and all that. So I got myself a, a Stratocaster and uh, I played it for, I don't know, like a few days. It just never, maybe because I didn't have a band. Okay. Maybe just because I, I really just love the stripped down acoustic clean sound uh, where the lyrics really take the center stage for me it's always songs uh the you know the, the guitar or piano or any other instrument it's just a way to support the lyrics really um for me well primarily okay i try to write you know you want great music as well but for me the, the lyrics are always the kind of the center center of the project well, I can tell that. In fact, uh, I was reading your blog, and you are a very wordy fellow. I can be, and, uh-huh. and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. uh, that's are, edited down. Uh-huh. Are you also a writer? Is that a safe assumption? Um, I don't really write outside of... I've dabbled in, in some poetry and stuff. Um, I've done a lot of writing, but I, as far as um, what I'm marketing and what I'm putting out there and publishing to the world, it's really just... Um, songwriting an occasional blog on the internet or whatever well if you're going to do one thing you might as well do it as well as you do yeah well thank you thank you so, very much do you have a cd i do i have i've got two of them and and they're both uh, i i bring them for sale they're for sale on the website i, I bring them around with me to shows and stuff well, what uh, is your website joelcurtis.net not okay. dot com but dot net dot net yeah. all right um do you post future gigs and things like that on your website so yes yep. those of us who might want to see you perform could do so yep everything is listed on there the lyrics to most of my songs it needs updating um with a couple of new songs but the lyrics to most of my songs are are posted on uh, on the website and yes i i keep it's called i think the tab is called uh, shows you okay. know you go to the top menu you just go to shows okay. and that'll show you where i'm playing in the next few months facebook twitter i'm on facebook and instagram i don't okay. do twitter Twitter's um, been kind of ruined. It's been kind of ruined, and I find that mm, just my audience isn't there. And, uh, <laughs> right. you know, I, I, I kind of – I try to target what I'm doing. You sure. know what I mean? And most of my audience seems to be on Facebook and, and Instagram. So. Well, it's been a tremendous pleasure to see and hear you perform here in our studio, and I wish you all the very best. Thank you. Thank you. With a new start to a new year, I thought it would be fun to find out how some animal sayings got their start. You know some of these sayings. Eat like a bird, busy as a bee, sneaky as a snake. He's acting kind of squirrely, and others. When I did a little research on this topic, I was amazed at all the references to farm and wild animals, insects, birds, and other critters. As long as we've included idioms, wives' tales proverbs and adages to our history, there have been references to the other life forms with which we share this planet. So for my first nature ramblings for 2020, and to perhaps add to your next party conversation just for fun, here are a few animal sayings and their origins. And I underline the word few. They go on forever. Wild goose chase. I've been on a few of these over the years, I admit. But I did not know it actually comes from William Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet. 
there's a reference in the play to, quote, a tedious, uncertain pursuit like the following of a flock of wild geese. Shakespeare coined the phrase, and actors and the rest of us have been using it ever since. When pigs fly. I heard this phrase when there's a lot of doubt if certain things will actually happen. It comes from a dictionary in the year 1616 with a list of proverbs written by author John Withal. There's a reference with the Old English method of spelling to, quote, pigs fly in the air with their tails forward. Apparently, if pigs flew with their tails pointing backward, that was okay. But if their tails pointed forward when flying, well, that just wouldn't happen. Hence, a very doubtful occurrence when pigs fly. Happy as a clam. This saying is perhaps more common to people living on the East Coast, where they hunt for clams at low tide. The phrase originally was happy as a clam at high water, meaning there was no threat from land predators to the clam when the tide was in. It reportedly was first used in an 1844 issue of a Pennsylvania newspaper, the Adams Sentinel. When I first heard this phrase, I visualized the big grin on the clam where the two shells come together. Nope, not even close. But I'm still happy to learn it as a clam that I found the true origin. Swan song. The idea that swans sing just before they die has been disproven many times, although it hasn't stopped the spread of the saying. Someone must have observed a flight of swans loud and squawking as they landed and later saw that one had died. But there's no evidence that swans sing before death. In fact, it was Pliny the Elder back in 77 AD and included a mention of this falsehood-rooted saying in his A Natural History. It does occur later in the works of Shakespeare, Coleridge, and Chaucer, proving that at least with these authors, they didn't avoid a poetic vision, even if it was false. Busy as a bee, or is it busy as a beaver? Both have been observed as industrious critters, working nonstop on food storage, care of the young, and home building, so it shouldn't be a surprise to say they're constantly working or busy. When it comes to bees, it was again Geoffrey Chaucer who gave us this saying, the first known use of a bee adage appeared in his Canterbury Tales in The Squire's Tale. He says, Lo, such sighties and subtleties in women be, for I, as busy as bees they be, be they us silly men for to deceive. With both of these animals, the bee and the beaver, you've probably seen TV documentaries on their close-up living arrangements, interrelations, communications, and other things. I think to call both of them busy is an understatement. The more I paid attention to these animal sayings, the more I found they're everywhere and used every day. And you've heard them, I know. A sitting duck, to chicken out, fly in the ointment or fly on the wall, a catnap, to go whole hog, straight from the horse's mouth, and many others. But one you hear with each Brown County Hour radio introduction has got me puzzled. I'll have to ask my good friend Dave Seastrom where he thinks it comes from. You hear him say each episode, and swim buck naked in summer. Well, the last buck I saw wasn't naked. It was running through the woods. Buck naked, hmm. So is there a doe naked or a fawn naked? I will check and get back to you. In the meantime, if you know the origin of this term, let us know here at the Brown County Hour studio. We'd like to be enlightened as we get into the new year. Jim Eagleman for Nature Ramblings, the Brown County Hour. Thanks for listening. 
Oh, this next song is fun. It's called Little Me. And uh, kind of the inspiration behind this song really is the fact that when I was a kid, like I think most other people, I believed some weird things, you know, because you're, you're a kid. You're, you're finding out about the world and you're kind of come to your own conclusions about things. Uh, one specific example is um, I remember when I was a kid, I would see the smokestacks from the power plants or whatever. And, you know, you'd see this big blue sky and then you'd see the smokestack ejecting these big puffs of white and you know to my child's mind I just thought hey that's where clouds come from for the longest time I believed that it, I mean it made sense to me then um, I've never forgot about that and I kind of just made this little song out of it it's called Little Me When I was little I thought my birthday started off the new year there were tiny people in the TV And I swore they could see me And cats were baby dogs And hiccups made you taller Rainbow was a color And my teachers lived at school and I hastily concluded That sex was naked kissing And kissing made babies Come out of belly buttons I'd have gladly told you that my daddy was a giant And the world was black and white when he was my age And I'd have told you straight face the trees made the wind blow And station wagons fly when you open all the doors And the moon was made of cheese and you could dig your way to China But as for Santa Claus now, that one actually gave me pause because how could a guy that old deliver that many presents to that many kids in just one night? It's impossible. Unlike the tiny little man who lived under the street and turned the red lights green when it was time for me to go and there was no doubt in my mind that my daddy was a giant and the world was black and white when he was my age. Now the scientists claim that space and time are one thing Wiggling and bending like a 4D trampoline And they'd have me believe we are clouds of probability Spinning through a galaxy in a holographic reality So can it be that little me was not so crazy after all? But I'm all grown up now and life has lost a little magic It got a little tragic somewhere along the way Cause now I drive in a little box to work in a little box I come home to a little box, I even dream in a little box Where cats are only cats and my birthday's just a working day Rainbows are illusions and sex is complicated Sometimes I still dream that my daddy is a giant And the world was black and white when he was my age Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, 
WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. We begin segment two with a Jeff Tryon piece, Real Brown County, that he recorded some time ago. A few of the observations are dated, but we feel this piece is still relevant and we're glad to share it with you. Author Phil Stevens joins us to talk about his new book, and Joel Curtis has two more songs, Sidekick and Surprise. What about the real Brown County? When I was a teenager, we used to try to get the out-of-town girls to go out cruising the back roads with us with this irresistible invitation. How would you ladies like to go see the real Brown County? Of course, we meant the less seen, the off-the-beaten-track, out-of-the-way places folks here so often come across where we just have to pause and say, wow, that's the real Brown County. The older I've gotten, the more amused I have become by this illusory notion. With the closing of the iconic Nashville House restaurant last year, I couldn't help thinking about how it seems like more and more we're at a crossroads here in Brown County. Everyone feels it. Things are changing in a fundamental way. Tectonic shifts in the underplate of whatever it was we thought we were. I got to wondering, what will become of the Nashville House, which until late last year was the oldest continually operating restaurant in Brown County? Who will buy it and what will they do with it? The answer to that question is like a weather vane to the larger question of what will Brown County be like in 10 or 20 years? You would think that the new owners, anyone with a sense God gave a toad frog, would simply remake the Nashville house as it has always been because it's an institution. It's practically a work of performance art, like an old painting of some earlier imagined country dining room magically brought to life with checkered tablecloths and fried biscuits and all the old Brown County artists hanging around on the walls. Somehow, I can't picture it as a fern bar with a hundred kinds of beer and ninety kinds of wine. But people do get ideas. We think of things like the Nashville House as defining the essence of what Brown County is, but we need to understand that the Nashville House wasn't the real Brown County any more than a lot of other commercial establishments that have entered our domain and maybe rubbing us the wrong way. The Nashville House was a construct, a created thing, made to look like dining at the perfect little country home, just as the old country store was never really a store at all, but always a creation to kind of show tourists what an old country store was really like. By the way, John Kay, our preeminent local folklorist, has an excellent paper on just this subject, how the old country store represents created folklore. Not life as it was, but life as we would like to remember it. Life as we would like it to have been. So if some new owner would sweep in and for some unfathomable reason decide to remake the Nashville house as an art deco stainless steel and chrome jazz bar, who are we to say that's not really Brown County? Who are we? If you recall, this feature, My Brown County, began with the premise that each of us may have our own personal idea of what constitutes the, quote, real Brown County, unquote, and it may or may not jibe with the concept of our various neighbors here in the actual Brown County, that each of us somehow plays a part in making Brown County whatever it is. Longtime 
local business mogul Andy Rogers passed away recently. Of course, the Nashville house was sort of the flagship of his whole Nashville empire. I got to thinking about a conversation I once had with Greg Temple, who was a longtime owner and publisher of the Brown County Democrat. He credited Andy Rogers with branding Brown County. He made the Brown County experience all about eating at the Nashville house and driving through the state park and parading through the little shops on Main Street. He made it about log cabins, Brown County stone, and an annual pilgrimage to see the fall colors. But Mr. Rogers had some real idea of Brown County's real history and culture. He had grown up with a box seat view of the artist's colony, the little town, and the hatching of the tourism industry. Now we are faced with an influx of owner-entrepreneurs determined to remake the image of Brown County who don't seem particularly well informed about our unique past and culture, who seem bent upon applying to it the same formulas for mass consumption and exploitation as have always worked everywhere else. Once we were just arguing about what parts of Brown County's rich culture and heritage we were going to be accentuating, what we were going to promote as our image, our brand, the art colony and the original artists, the rugged physical beauty which some felt compared to the Great Smoky Mountains, the pioneer heritage of a place where things stayed the same much longer than they did in other parts of the country, glimpses of yesterday preserved intact, now it seems like the branding of Brown County is in the hands of a lot of folks who couldn't care less about the real history or culture of Brown County. Well, they like to appropriate our cute little place names from Gnawbone to Possum Trot, but they've never been there. They don't understand anything about them, even that they are real places. That glimpse of yesteryear, that celebration of Brown County as a backward place belonging to a simpler time continues to be stretched and bent as we move steadily into the very real 21st century. Once again, we are faced with that ongoing question of who we are, where we've come from, and, and what that means. Maybe Brown County doesn't mean a thing. Maybe it's just a little country spot like every other little country spot on the map. One thing is for sure. If we don't intentionally think about who we are and where we've come from, if we aren't intentional about knowing and saying who we are, then the whole idea of the real Brown County is truly up for grabs. We're happy to report that the Nashville House has not only stayed in Andy Rogers' family, but is scheduled to reopen sometime this spring. I, I really appreciate songs and stories that can work on two levels. On one level, it's just about a superhero. On another level, it's really about struggling with feelings of inadequacy or playing second fiddle and what to do about that. So this is called Sidekick. I get home around dawn, hang my cape up by the door. I nurse the cuts and bruises accrued the night before. They're gonna hurt like hell later ain't easy fighting crime But I know just why I do it It ain't for the headlines See, I'm just a sidekick I never make the papers I only ride along On about half the capers I'm not doing this for glory I'm in it just to see My city's sleeping like a baby One more night because of me
Do I feel a little overlooked? Well, I thought you'd never ask. People mostly want to know who's behind the hero's mask. My colors are duller and my cape's a little smaller. He's stronger, smarter, faster, and most of all, a whole lot taller. So it does get a little lonely at the edge of the spotlight. Kicking eyes on the side, almost super, not quite. I'm not doing this for glory, I'm in it just to see. My city's sleeping like a baby one more night because of me. I hear it everywhere I go and I suppose it's true Nobody grows up dreaming of being number two But we're not all cut out to be heroes in the end So I swallow my pride, walk outside and see the world again See I am just a sidekick at the edge of the spotlight in the shadow of the hero in the service of what's right I'm not doing this for glory I'm in it just to see My city's sleeping like a baby one more night because of me Even though I know it's mostly not because of me It is my pleasure to introduce author Phil Stevens, who has won the 2016 IPA Book Awards Gold Medal for his book, The Altar Boy. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. Um, I've been noodling around on the internet checking you out, and it looks like this is a really successful book. That you're getting a lot of attention, and you've won this award, and you're selling some books, and that's pretty amazing. Well, so far, it, it's, it's, it's done okay, especially for an unknown author. Um, it's been out for a couple of years now, and I was told by somebody that uh, has been in the publishing industry that for an unknown author, it takes at least a couple of years to get a book uh, really up and running. And it's taken a lot of work. I've done a lot of work on, the, on Amazon, through Barnes & Noble, most all the independent bookstores in central Indiana, visiting them. It's just, uh, it's, it's a lot of marketing effort. So physically, you actually go to these places with your book and convince them to sell it? Yes, I do. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of work. Do you remember the movie Coal Miner's Daughter with Sissy Spacek? Yes. Do you remember the scene where he recorded a couple of her records and they ran around to radio stations yeah. in rural Kentucky right. and got them to play? Well, that's, that's kind of what I did. Well, uh, it seems to be paying off. You're getting some attention. I, I'm getting some attention. Um, I also did the th- uh, same thing with the independent bookstores uh, to Barnes & Noble. I convinced them. I started out with the Barnes & Noble in Plainfield to uh, carry my book and let me do a book signing there, which turned out to be very successful. And so most of the Barnes & Nobles in Indiana I'm in now. One of the prerequisites to get in there, however, is to have your book listed with their Ingram book distribution system, which I've managed to do. So I'm not only uh, in, in that distribution system, but also in Kindle Direct Publishing, which is, which is Amazon. So I can get your book on, on my Kindle? You could. Mm-hmm. Now, it, 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 from a financial standpoint, that's not as lucrative for you, though, is it? No, it's not. I mean, I still make money. Okay. Uh, but there's, there's more margin on the paper, uh, paper book sales. Uh, however, the Kindle, the Kindle version's done fantastic. Uh-huh. I've hit bestseller category a couple times now. Wow. Mm-hmm. Not, not number one, but uh, in the top 2%. No, of that's, all Amazon that's sales. tremendous. Mm-hmm. 
anything in the arts is just crazy. And it is. It, it seems to me from other authors that I've talked to that writing has got to be about the craziest of the crazy. Well, it's it's one thing to write the book and finish the book, and that, that is a big enough mountain to climb, but then you've got another mountain in distribution and marketing. So did you self-publish this, or did you interest a publisher? The Altar Boy, which is the first book, was self-published. Okay. My second book, At the Edge of the Stairs, um, Pennup Publishing out of Columbus is going to publish it for me. Okay. Is that a better deal for you? Uh, well, it's a better deal up front because they will handle the uh, editing, which alone can be expensive, putting the actual book together. I see. And all of me... that was your responsibility. But Every bit of it. Every right. bit of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I think that that would be a definition of crazy. A little bit. Uh, you had to design the book cover. You had to. I did. Yeah. All of it. I did. Mm-hmm. Now, I've designed my own book cover for the second book. But uh, as far as the, uh, the nuts and bolts logistics, Pennant Publishing will be helping me with that. Well, okay. So um, I don't actually know, and I'm not a, one of those carnival people, but I can tell from looking at you that you're an older guy. Okay. And so I'm curious, as your first book, uh-huh. what point in your life did you decide, I want to write a book? I mean, obviously I, you didn't start doing this in your 20s, or maybe you did. No, I've been running to write a book for years, but everything else, it just, the right time has to come, the right feeling has to come. And at some point, I just made a decision, either I'm going to do this or I'm not. And I, I think, thankful I decided to do it. And it's a story I had to get out, a story that had to be told. I pretty much did it for me. Okay. Well, it, it, it appears to be autobiographical. It's, 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 it's based on a true story. It's a fictionalized version of a true story. Okay. Now, you grew up in Indianapolis. I did, on the west side of Indianapolis. West side, okay. What parish were you a member of? St. Michael's. Okay. On about 30th and uh, just off 30th and Lafayette Road. So, you know, uh, unfortunately, I've not had the opportunity to read the book, which means I'm not prepared. Uh, If I was a a good interviewer, I would have read your entire book before this happened. That's all right. Uh, But, but, you know, the information came to me this afternoon and, you know, just didn't have the the bandwidth to do it. Oh, I understand. Uh, the reviews say that it's a really funny book, and uh, the one that I, I, I particularly liked was, if you grew up Catholic, you're either going to really love this book or you're going to hate it. You're right. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to talk about the love-hate part of the story? Well, the good Catholic people out there, that the, the topic of the book is something that a lot of people won't want to talk about. And we're talking about the 10,000-pound gorilla in the room? no. And there's a lot of people that, that see things for what they are and are willing to talk about it. We'll have to go back to the nature of what exactly the book is about. Okay. And the book is about a relationship between a, uh, well, a married woman at the time and a Catholic priest. Okay. As seen through the eyes of a young boy and how he dealt with it. All right. And I'm that young boy, and that, writing a book is how I dealt with it. Interesting. The book takes place in the 1960s, or at least starts out, it actually starts out in the late 50s. You're not that old. No, well... Thank you very much, David. <laughs> I have a feeling we're about the same age. What what year did you graduate from high school? Uh, 1973. All right. I graduated in 72. So the young man finds something out that disturbs him greatly because it upsets his values, right? I mean, a priest isn't supposed to behave that way. Oddly enough, he never quite found out Okay. until later, much later in his life, whether what he saw he hid so much in his subconscious, went into denial, didn't want to believe it. What he went through on the surface was disturbing enough at the time, but he didn't really come to grips with it as to exactly what happened until years and years later. So my assumptions, of course, would go towards the big items in the news, which is not at all what this book is about. No, it's not. People think it is. When they look at the cover, they think it's about uh, 
the abuse end of it, and it's not. Yeah. Right. It's not. But it's about another issue equally as equally as serious and equally as prevalent, but it's not discussed much. Well, isn't it interesting that there's all of this discussion about allowing married priests to exist within the church now? Yes, I think you're going to see more and more of that discussion. The main purpose of my book was toward that goal, to let priests marry. That would have solved a lot of problems back then. Uh, a lot. might solve a lot of problems now. I'm sure it would. Yeah. I'm sure it would. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no real excuse for it um, outside of maybe money. Maybe the Catholic Church wants, when the priests pass away, they want whatever money they've got left to the church and not to the family. I don't know. It's a good question. Well, so now you've got this new book coming out, The Edge of the Stairs, and it's just about to be published or what? Well, I've turned it over to the publisher for editing, which will take a good couple of months. I actually just finished the draft about three, the first draft about three weeks ago. I think I saw that picture on Facebook today. You, you were kind of happy about it. Yeah, you might have. I think there was a beer in the background. Uh, there, yes, there was. Yeah, there was a beer. In the, there was a beer in the foreground. Foreground. <laughs> yes. So, do you have a Facebook page devoted to your writing? I do. I do. Um, just Phil Stevens, author. Just, just look that up, and okay. it should, it should come up. Okay. Do you have a website? PhilStevensPublications.com. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we can go to Amazon and get the Kindle, or we can go to your website and buy a book directly from you. You could. Is that what benefits you the most? Uh, what benefits me the most would be going to a Barnes & Noble and getting it, or um, a Falling Leaf Books here in Nashville has it. Excellent. Or uh, or go to Amazon.com. That, that's where you get the Kindle version. Okay, right. And again, the Kindle's doing really well. And then as far as at the edge of the stairs, it'll be in the same distribution system. Well, that gives us something to look forward to, Phil. Well, I, ho- I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, I, and, and actually, I'm very much looking forward to reading... Uh, the Altar Boy, and I look well, thanks, forward David. to your next book. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. All right. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Same Bill. here. All right. Uh, this song is called Surprise. I never thought I'd write a song for a girl. Never thought I'd get along with the world. I thought love would never give me a word. Never thought I'd write a song for a girl But then you did a number on me You did me easy as one, two, three All the way to infinity You really did a number on me Love is like a sunrise It happens before your very eyes Still somehow surprised And you're as cool as the moon above It's hot as noonday in the summer of love When boys daydream what they dream of As cool as the moon You taught me the only truth I know told me so never heard it in bird songs or rivers that flow you taught me the only truth I know love is like a sunrise it happens before your very eyes still somehow
Living's got much treasure in store Alone has some, together has more I'm never far from your front door Living's got much treasure in store Love is like a sunrise It happens before your very eyes Still somehow surprise Surprise We pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from listeners like you and the support of the Brown County Inn, a family-friendly getaway destination located in Nashville, Indiana, offering locally sourced food, drinks, and live entertainment with banquet space, indoor-outdoor pool, miniature golf, and more. Information and booking available at browncountyinn.com. In acknowledgement of the anniversary of women receiving the right to vote, our final segment begins with a history lesson from Pam Rader about the suffragettes. Dave Seastrom shares his memories of the blizzard of 1978, and we'll close the show with the Joel Curtis song, Mom and Dad. This is Pam Rader with the Brown County Hour. 2020 promises to be quite a year and has much to celebrate. On January 1st, the Tournament of Roses parade theme was The Power of Hope. A float from the descendants of the Mayflower came into view. Yes, the Mayflower landed 400 years ago. Soon after, another float appeared, accompanied by women marchers dressed in white, honoring the women suffragettes who finally won the right to vote with the 19th Amendment 100 years ago in 1920. By the way, this later group included a local Brown County history teacher, Emily Llewellyn. The passage of the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote by stating, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. This was not a new idea, as Abigail Adams had written words to this effect to her husband John in March 31, 1776, urging him and other members to the Continental Congress to consider the rights of women. Achieving this end was not a quick nor easy battle. In fact, it took 72 years of effort. The suffragette effort begins in 1848 when Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Gady Stanton, inspired by the Iroquois Confederacy and Quaker thinkers, 
convened the first women's right convention in Seneca Falls, New York, where a resolution demanding equal suffrage was passed. Susan B. Anthony later joined and led the movement with her motto, Failure is not an option. It was she who crafted the first draft of an amendment in 1875. For years, abolitionists and women rights advocates worked side by side to expand voting rights for all Americans, and indeed the 15th Amendment, giving black men the right to vote, did pass in 1870 and now celebrates its 150th anniversary this year. Soon after the convention, a campaign for women's suffrage began in earnest in states all across America. The first Indiana Women's Rights Convention was organized by Quaker Amanda Way in 1851 in Dublin, Indiana. The next year, the Indiana Women's Rights Association was formed. Indiana actually granted women the right to vote twice and rescinded it twice before the actual passage of the 19th Amendment. When the Indiana State Congress first passed this right to vote in 1881, it was mysteriously left out of the journal log and when voted on again in 1883, did not pass. Later, the Women's Franchise League of Indiana lobbied to pass the Partial Suffrage Act, which did pass in Indiana in 1917, and some 40,000 women registered to vote. Local resident Estella Taggart Hopper was sent to Indianapolis to represent the women of Brown County. However, the act was declared unconstitutional by the Indiana Supreme Court right before they were able to vote in November. On June 4, 1919, the 19th Amendment passed both chambers of the federal government. To make it official law of the land, two-thirds of the state congresses had to ratify the amendment. On January 16, 1920, Indiana became the 26th state to ratify the amendment. Finally, on August 18, 1920, the last state needed to ratify signed on and the amendment became law on August 26, 1920. More than 26 million women had now become full-fledged voters overnight. According to our local historical archives, the number of women voters in Brown County the first year nearly equaled the men. As registration closed, a thousand women voters were added to the 1,600 men. Looking forward to a time when women could vote and preparing them for this right, the suffragette movement morphed into the League of Women Voters, which claims its birthday as February 14, 1920. The purpose of the League of Women Voters was to study and educate voters about the issues of the day. This remains its primary function, although it's not just for women now. 
our local League of Women Voters, partnering with the Brown County Historical Society, will be honoring our centennial birthdays on International Women's Day, March 8th, by hosting a tea at our local history center in downtown Nashville. Maybe the parade theme rings true with hope anything in fact, all things are possible. This is Pam Rader for the Brown County Hour. So far this season, we've been having mild weather without much snow. While we're enjoying this unusually mild winter, it's good to remember that not all winters are like that. And for those of us who were alive at the time, no one will ever forget the blizzard of 78. 42 years ago, on Wednesday, January 25, 1978, I was working on the north side of Indy at Sun Jewelry, located in Broad Ripple. At that time, our home was on Three Story Hill Road in Brown County. We'd lived there for just a little over a year, and my first wife and our son, Ben, who was 14 months old, were alone in the house while I was at work. We heard that a major storm was on its way the day before, but I went to work anyway because we really needed the money. That afternoon, the storm came in like gangbusters. I told my boss, Roger, that I had to leave right away if I was going to make it home. On my way out of town, I pulled into the standard grocery store at 56th and Illinois. The scene in the store was apocalyptic as panicked patrons loaded their carts with everything in sight. I'll never forget the two male customers on the verge of a fistfight over the last loaf of Wonder Bread. I was driving a 1968 Ford half-ton pickup with questionable tires and no weight in the bed, and it was all I could do to keep that truck on the road. While I drove south through the center of town, the snowfall increased in intensity as the temperatures dropped and the wind began to howl. Eventually, I was on State Highway 135, and the road disappeared into snowdrifts the farther south I got. The stakes were high, and the roads were becoming more treacherous by the minute. North of Bargersville, I watched as someone in front of me left the road and buried their car in a snowdrift. White-knuckled but determined, I continued on. The state police set up a roadblock just south of Trafalgar, and I came to a stop. A middle-aged officer approached my truck on foot and informed me that the road was closed and I wouldn't be allowed to continue. As politely as I could, I informed the officer that I had a truck full of groceries and a wife and a young baby at home that needed them. So if he wouldn't let me drive through, I was going to hike as much as I could carry to my home south of Morgantown. He looked at me, he looked at my truck, and he looked at all of the groceries filling the cab of my truck, and he took pity on me. He moved the barrier out of the way and said, Good luck, kid. I hope you make it. By this time, the wind was at a fever pitch, and the snow was so deep the only way to keep track was to follow the fence rows that marked the road. Even though I left in mid-afternoon, it was well past dark when I drove through Morgantown. For a long time, mine was the only vehicle on the highway. But when I got to Three Story Hill in Fruitdale, there was a man waving traffic down at the beginning of the road. When I stopped, he informed me that there was a several-car pileup at the bottom of the first hill and there was no way to make it through. Rolling the dice, I proceeded south on 135 to Lake LaSalle Road. 
I knew this road would take me back to Three-Story Hill, but I had no idea if the road I lived on was blocked. The only thing in my mind was to keep going. Both of these roads have steep hills, but the third hill on Three-Story Hill Road was by far the steepest and most challenging. Luck was with me, and somehow I managed to shimmy up that last steep hill and pull into our driveway where I buried the truck in a snowdrift. My wife was worried about me, and she had no way to know if I was all right. We were both supremely grateful that I made it home unhurt, and we were also grateful to have a truck full of food to get us by. The storm raged throughout the night, and we were concerned that we might lose power. We had a wood stove as a backup, so we weren't in danger of freezing, but it was nice to be able to track the storm on TV and stay in touch with the world. About four days in, the water pressure began to drop, and we found out later it took that long for someone to be able to make it to the water company and turn the pumps back on. Five days later, the roads were plowed, and I was able to go back to work. In Trafalgar, the road had been plowed by bulldozers, and the snow on either side of the road was every bit of ten feet deep. It occurred to me that if I had left town an hour later, I would have never made it home. While we are contentedly listening to the radio, snug in our warm houses, it's good to remember a wild winter storm that took place not so long ago. That will, without a doubt, happen again. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. This next song is called Dear Mom and Dad, and it's uh, sort of a letter addressed to my parents that I put to music just to get a few things off of my chest. Mom and Dad, it's your boy You know the one you rarely hear from I heard a Nancy Griffith song today And it made me think of you I try to picture your faces And imagine what you're doing Maybe watching all the birds come and go Outside your kitchen window I know sometimes I've been angry with you Said a word's meant to sting you a little We all carry the weight of remorse But we're stuck with the past And it's time we made our peace with that Our days are short It's time we made our peace Dear mom and dad, I'm sorry I got mad You gave me the best childhood I've ever had I know sometimes it was hard We hurt each other pretty bad It's all good and I'm glad you are my mom and dad I've never once been sad to call you mom and dad Mom and dad, I hope you're well in body, mind, and spirit And rest assured I am the same Cause I know it's what you want most of all And it's mostly thanks to you You gave me everything I needed And though I left home with a scar or two It didn't ruin my heart now I'm older than you were when I was born 
Fighting many of the battles you were fighting then In a world unforgiving and wild It's hard to grow a flower, let alone raise a child Hard to grow a flower, let alone raise a child Dear mom and dad, I'm sorry I got mad you gave me the best childhood I've ever had And though sometimes it was hard And we hurt each other pretty bad It's all good and I'm glad You are my mom and dad I've never once been sad To call you mom and dad Mom and dad, all I wanted you to know I forgive you and I'm sorry And even though in this hard life Nothing's harder than family In that lottery I got pretty lucky oh. In that lottery I got pretty lucky So dear mom and dad I'm sorry I got mad you gave me the best childhood I've ever had And though sometimes it was hard And we hurt each other really bad it's all good and I'm glad you are my mom and dad I've never once been sad to call you mom and dad Mom and dad, I'm sorry I got so Thanks for tuning in to episode 94 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. and anytime online. Be sure to look for us on iTunes and Stitcher. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe now, more than ever, the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh